I join in commending these precious children for that lovely music and for what they are in the process of becoming. Brothers and sisters, the scriptures offer us so many doctrinal diamonds, and when the light of the Spirit plays upon their several facets, they sparkle with celestial sense and illuminate the path we are to follow. Exemplifying this happy reality are the doctrinal teachings concerning desire, which relate so directly to our moral agency and our individuality. Whether in their conception or expression, our desires profoundly affect the use of our moral agencies. Desires thus become real determinants, even when, with pitiful naivete, we do not really want the consequences of our desires. Desire denotes a real longing or craving. Hence, righteous desires are much more than passive preferences or fleeting feelings. Of course, our genes and circumstances and environments matter very much, and they shape us significantly. Yet there remains an inner zone in which we are sovereign unless we abdicate. In this zone lies the essence of our individuality and our personal accountability. Therefore, what we insistently desire over time is what we will eventually become and what we will receive in eternity. For I, said the Lord, will judge all men according to their works, according to the desire of their hearts. Alma said, I know that God granteth unto men according to their desire. I know that he allotteth unto men according to their wills. To reach this equitable end, God's canopy of mercy is stretched out, including all that shall die henceforth without a knowledge of the gospel, who would have received it with all their hearts, shall be heirs of that kingdom. For I, the Lord, will judge all men according to their works and according to the desire of their hearts. God thus takes into merciful account not only our desires and our performances, but also the degrees of difficulty which our varied circumstances impose upon us. No wonder we will not complain at the final judgment, especially since even the celestial kingdom's glory surpasses all understanding. God delights in blessing us, especially when we realize from our petitions joy in that which we have desired. However, in contrast to God's merciful plan for our joy and glory, Satan desires that all men might be miserable like unto himself. Mostly, brothers and sisters, we become the victims of our own wrong desires. Moreover, we live in an age when many simply refuse to feel responsible for themselves. Thus, a crystal-clear understanding of the doctrines pertaining to desire is so vital because of the spreading effluent oozing out of so many unjustified excuses by so many. This is like a sludge which is sweeping society along towards the gulf of misery and endless woe. Feeding that same flow is the selfish philosophy of no fault, which is replacing the meek and apologetic my fault. 
We listen with eager ear to hear genuine pleas for forgiveness instead of the ritualistic, sorry, I hope I can forgive myself. Some seek to brush aside conscience, refusing to hear its voice. But that deflection is, in itself, an act of choice, because we so desire it. Even when the light of Christ flickers only faintly in the darkness, it flickers nevertheless. If one averts his gaze therefrom, it is because he so desires. Like it or not, therefore, reality requires that we acknowledge our responsibility for our desires. Brothers and sisters, which do we really desire—God's plans for us or Satan's? Whenever spiritually significant things are underway, righteous desires are present. Meek desire characterized those awaiting baptism at the Waters of Mormon. With their baptismal commitments spelled out specifically, they exclaimed, This is the desire of our hearts. The Nephite multitude, enraptured by the presence of the resurrected Jesus, knelt in humble and intensive prayer. Yet they did not multiply many words, for it was given unto them what they should pray, and they were filled with desire. No wonder desires also determine the gradations in outcomes, including why many are called but few are chosen. It is up to us. God will facilitate, but He will not force. Righteous desires need to be relentless, therefore, because, said President Brigham Young, quote, the men and women who desire to obtain seats in the celestial kingdom will find that they must battle every day." End quote. Therefore, true Christian soldiers are more than weekend warriors. The absence of any keen desire of merely being lukewarm causes a terrible flattening. William R. May explains such sloth, quote, The soul in this state is beyond mere sadness and melancholy. It has removed itself from the rise and fall of feelings. The very root of its feelings in desire is dead. To be a man is to desire. A good man desires God and other things in God. The sinful man desires things in place of God, but he is still recognizably human inasmuch as he has known desire. The slothful man is a dead man, an arid waste his desire itself has dried up." End quote. This sad condition is yet another variation of the sorrowing of the dam. Even a spark of desire can begin change. The prodigal son, sunk in despair, nevertheless desired, and came to himself, determining that I will arise and go to my father. What we're speaking about is so much more than merely deflecting temptations for which we somehow do not feel responsible. Remember, brothers and sisters, it is our own desires which determine the sizing and the attractiveness of various temptations. We set our own thermostats as to temptations. Thus, educating and training our desires clearly requires understanding the truths of the gospel. Yet even more is involved. 
President Brigham Young confirmed, saying, It is evident that many who understand the truth do not govern themselves by it. Consequently, no matter how true and beautiful truth is, you have to take the passions of the people and mold them to the laws of God. Do you, President Young asked, think that people will obey the truth because it is true unless they love it? No, they will not. End quote. Thus, knowing gospel truths and doctrines is profoundly important, but we must also come to love them. When we love them, they will move us and help our desires and outward works to become more holy. Each assertion of a righteous desire, each act of service, and each act of worship, however small and incremental, adds to our spiritual momentum. Like Newton's second law, there is a transmitting of acceleration as well as a contagiousness associated with even the smallest acts of goodness. Fortunately for us, our loving Lord will work with us, even if we can do no more than desire to believe, providing we will let this desire work in us. Therefore, declared President Joseph F. Smith, the education of our desires is one of far-reaching importance to our happiness in life. Such education can lead to sanctification until, said President Brigham Young, holy desires produce corresponding outward works. Only by educating and training our desires can they become our allies instead of our enemies. Some of our present desires, therefore, need to be diminished and then finally dissolved. For instance, the biblical counsel, Let not thine heart envy sinners, is directed squarely at those with a sad unsettlement of soul. Once again, we must be honest with ourselves about the consequences of our desires, which follow as the night the day. Similarly, faced with life's so-called bad breaks, the natural man desires to wallow in self-pity. Therefore, this desire must go too. But the dissolution of wrong desires is only part of it. For instance, what is now only a weak desire to be a better spouse, father, or mother needs to become a stronger desire. Just as Abraham experienced divine discontent and desired greater happiness and knowledge. Our merciful and long-suffering Lord is ever ready to help. His arm is lengthened out all the day long, and even if his arm goes ungrasped, it was unarguably there. In the same redemptive reaching out, our desiring to improve our human relationships usually requires some long-suffering. Sometimes reaching out is like trying to pat a porcupine. Even so, the accumulated quill marks are evidence that our hand of fellowship has been stretched out, too. It is up to us. Therein lies life's greatest and most persistent challenge. Thus, when people are described as having lost their desire for sin, it is they and they only who deliberately decided to lose those wrong desires by being willing to give away all their sins in order to know God. Unquestionably, parents have such a profound role 
in assisting in the educating of our desires, especially when parents combine explanation and exemplification. Even so, given our responsibility for our own desires, we should not be surprised that Adam and Eve, such superb parents, who conscientiously taught all things to their children, still lost some of them. Lehi and Sariah made the same effort, doing so with all the feeling of a tender parent. Yet they experienced the same thing with Laman and Lemuel, who understood not the dealings of the Lord. Fixing responsibility for such recalcitrance where it should be, the Prophet Joseph Smith observed, quote, Men who have no principle of truth do not understand the word of truth when they hear it. The devil taketh away the word of truth out of their hearts because there is no desire for righteousness in them. End quote. Nevertheless, conscientious and able parents will do all they can to exemplify and explain. Besides, righteous parents are teaching more than they now realize. The applications of and the grateful expressions for earlier parental influence are often delayed and sometimes a long time. With true desire, we then can really plead, more holiness give me, more patience in suffering, more sorrow for sin, more faith in my Savior, more tears for His sorrows, more pain at His grief, more meekness in trial, more praise for relief. Brothers and sisters, a loving God will work with us, but the initiating particle of desire, which ignites the spark of resolve, must be our own. It all takes time. Said the Prophet Joseph, quote, The nearer man approaches perfection, the clearer are his views and the greater his enjoyments, till he has overcome the evils of his life and lost every desire for sin, and like the ancients arrives at that point of faith where he is wrapped in the power and glory of his Maker and is caught up to dwell with him. But we consider that this is a station to which no man ever arrived in a moment." Quote. Thus the work of eternity is not done in a moment, but rather in process of time. Time works for us when our desires do likewise. May God help us to train our desires. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. The Latter-day Saints are a covenant people. From the day of baptism through the spiritual milestones of our lives, we make promises with God and He makes promises with us. He always keeps His promises offered through His authorized servants. But it is the crucial test of our lives to see if we will make and keep our covenants with Him. I saw again the power of keeping covenants through a chance conversation with a man I sat down next to on a trip. I had never met him before, but apparently he had seen me in the crowd because his first words after I introduced myself were, I've been watching you. He told me about his work. I told him about mine. He asked me about my family, and then, I told, then he told me something about his. He said that his wife was a 
member of the church and that he was not. After he came to trust me, he said something like this, You know, there is something in your church you should fix. You need to tell your people when to quit. He explained that he and his wife had been married for 25 years. She had been a member of the church since childhood. In their years of marriage, she had only once stepped into a church building. And that was to tour our temple before its dedication, and then only because her parents had arranged it. Then he told me why he thought we ought to make a change. He said that in those 25 years of married life in which his wife showed no interest in the church, visiting teachers and home teachers had never stopped coming to their home. He told of one evening when he went to walk his dog alone, only to find the home teacher happening by with his dog, eager to visit with him. He told with a touch of exasperation of another night when he came home from a long business trip, put his car in the garage, and then came out to find his home teacher standing there smiling. He said to me something like this, and there they were right in my face with another plate of cookies. I think I understood his feelings. And then I tried as best as I could to tell him how hard it would be to teach such teachers to quit. I told him that the love that he had felt from those many visitors and their constancy over the years in the face of little response came from a covenant they had made with God. I told him about the baptismal covenant, as Alma described it in the Book of Mormon. I didn't quote these words. But you will remember them as Alma asked those he had taught whether they wished to be baptized. Quote, and it came to pass that he said unto them, Behold, here are the waters of Mormon, for thus they were called. And now as ye are desirous to come into the fold of God and to be called his people and are willing to bear one, another bur- one another's burdens that they may be light, yea, and are willing to mourn with those that mourn, yea, and comfort those that stand in need of comfort, and to stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things, and in all places that ye may be in even until death, that ye may be redeemed of God and be numbered with those of the first resurrection, that ye may have eternal life. Those home teachers and visiting teachers understood and believed that the covenant to be a witness and to love were intertwined and that they reinforced each other. There is no other way to explain what had happened. My new friend recognized that the visitors had genuine concern for him and for his wife, and he knew their caring sprang from a belief that impelled them to come back. He seemed, at least to me, to understand that those visitors were driven from within by a covenant they would not break. As we parted, I think he knew why he could expect. There would be more visits, more evidence of caring, and more patient waiting for the opportunity to bear testimony of the restored gospel. As we parted, I realized that I had learned something, too. I will never again see home teaching or visiting teaching as only programs of the Church. Those faithful teachers saw what they were doing for what it really was. Such work is an opportunity, not a burden. Every member has made the covenant in the waters of baptism to be a witness for God. Every member has made a covenant to do works of kindness as the Savior would do. So any call to bear witness and to care for others is not a request for extra service. It is a blessing designed by a loving Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. 
They have provided such calls as well as other settings, sometimes without a formal call, all for the same purpose. Each is a chance to prove what blessings flow from being a covenant people, and each is an opportunity for which you agreed to be accountable. Each is a sacred responsibility for others accepted in the waters of baptism, but too often not met because it may not be recognized for what it is. The power of that covenant to love and to witness should transform what members do in other settings across the world. One of the most important is in the family. Prophets in our time have consolidated our meetings on Sunday to allow time for families to be together. The prophets have also been inspired to help us reserve Monday night for family home evenings. Those opportunities require choices. In thousands of homes, the choices made are guided by the covenant to comfort those that stand in need of comfort and to stand as witnesses of God. Both the consolidation of the Sunday meetings and the creation of a family home evening are to provide opportunity for families to have time together to give Christ-like service and to study the scriptures and gospel principles. The power of that possibility was taught by President Spencer W. Kimball this way, quote, I wonder what this world would be like if every father and mother gathered their children around them at least once a week, explained the gospel, and bore fervent testimonies to them. How could immorality continue and infidelity break families and delinquency spawn? End of quote. There are in those hours on Sunday and in a family home evening on Monday the opportunity to combine genuine caring, teaching the gospel, and the bearing of testimony. Across the earth, there are families who love and understand their covenants who do that. From my front window, I have seen parents, their children at their sides, move down the street to the home of a neighbor to offer comfort, to give Christ-like service. I wasn't there to see it, but surely the warmth of those moments lingered later at home when a song of Zion was sung, a prayer given, that likely included a plea for the person visited, a scripture read, a short lesson taught, and testimonies of the restored gospel born. There is, a, there is a caution I would give and a promise I would offer about such choices of how to use family time. For a person not yet a member of the Church to fail to provide such moments of love and faith is simply a lost opportunity, but for those under covenant it is much more. There are few places where the covenant to love and to bear witness is more easily kept than in the home, and there are few places where it can matter more for those for whom we are accountable. For members of the Church, my caution is that to neglect those opportunities is a choice not to keep sacred covenants. Because God always honors covenants, I can make a promise to those who in faith keep the covenant to create experiences of giving love and bearing testimony with their families, they will reap a harvest of hearts touched, faith in Jesus Christ exercised unto repentance, and the desire and the power to keep covenants strengthened. There is another circumstance in which the covenant to combine kindness with bearing witness has great power to change lives. Thousands of times every day members of the Church are watched, as I was by the man I met on a trip, by people curious to know something about our lives. Because we are under covenant to be a witness, we will try to tell them how the gospel has brought us happiness. What they think of what we say may depend largely on how much they sense we care for them. 
That was true when King Lamoni met Ammon, as we have it described in the Book of Mormon. Ammon had been captured by guards and brought to the king who could take his life. But apparently within minutes, King Lamoni recognized that Ammon cared enough for him to want to serve him. Ammon said when offered high station, Nay, but I will be thy servant. Within days, the king knew that Ammon was willing to risk his life for him. And then came the opportunity for Ammon to be a witness of God to the king. Those we meet will feel the love that springs from our long practice in keeping a covenant to mourn with those that mourn, yea, and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. It may not be in hours or days as it was for King Lamoni, but they will feel our love after testing our hearts. And when they find our concern sincere, the Holy Spirit can more easily touch them to allow us to teach and to testify as it did for Ammon. Again, I have a caution and a promise. The caution is that sorrow will come from failure either to love or to bear witness. If we fail to feel and show honest concern for those we approach with the gospel, they will reasonably distrust our message. But if out of fear of rejection we fail to tell them what the gospel has meant in our lives and could mean in theirs, we will someday share their sorrow. Either in this life or in the life to come, they will know that we fail to share with them the priceless gift of the gospel. They will know that accepting the gospel was the only way for them to inherit eternal life. And they will know that we received the gospel with a promise that we would share it. I can make two promises to those who offer the gospel to others. The first is that even those who reject it will someday thank us. More than once I have asked missionaries to visit friends far from where I lived, learned that the missionaries had been rejected, and then received a letter from my friend with words like this, I was honored that you would offer to me something that I knew meant so much to you. If not in this life, such messages will be sent to us in the world to come, when those we approach will know the truth and how much we cared for them. My second promise is that as you offer the gospel to others, it will go down more deeply into your heart. It becomes the well of water springing up into eternal life for us as we offer it to others. There is one other setting which provides a near-perfect opportunity to combine love and testimony. In every ward and branch in the Church, once a month, we hold a fast and testimony meeting. We fast for two meals before we attend, with the money saved and adding more to it whenever we can. We pay a generous fast offering. The bishop and the branch president use those offerings under inspiration to care for the poor and the needy. Thus, by paying a fast offering, we give comfort to those in need of comfort, as we promised that we would. The fast also helps us to feel humble and meek, so that the Holy Ghost may more easily be our companion. By our fast, we both keep our covenant to care for others, and we prepare to keep our covenant to bear testimony. Those who have prepared carefully for the fast and testimony meeting won't need to be reminded how to bear testimony should they feel impressed to do it in the meeting. They won't give sermons, nor exhortations, nor travel reports, nor try to entertain as they bear witness. Because they will already have expressed appreciation to people privately, they will have less need to do it publicly. Neither will they feel a need to use eloquent language or to go on at length. A testimony is a simple expression of what we feel. 
The member who has fasted both for the blessing of the poor and for the companionship of the Spirit will be feeling gratitude for the love of God and the certainty of eternal life. Even a child can feel such things, which may be why sometimes the testimony of a child so moves us and why our preparation of fasting and prayer produces in us childlike feelings. That preparation for the fast and testimony meeting is a covenant obligation for members of the Church. The offering of the gospel to those we meet and to our families are covenant obligations. We can take heart that our honest effort to keep our covenants allows God to increase our power to do it. We all need that assurance at times when our promise to love and to witness seems hard for us. The fruit of keeping covenants is the companionship of the Holy Ghost and an increase in the power to love. That happens because of the power of the Atonement of Jesus Christ to change our very natures. We are eyewitnesses of that miracle of greater spiritual power coming to those who accept covenants and keep commandments. For instance, there are families across the Church who read and reread letters from their missionary children with wonder and a few tears at the miracle that in so short a time they have become new, better people. Yet I have also seen that same miracle in a mature man and woman called to serve as proselyting missionary companions in the most difficult of circumstances which would have taxed the bravest youth. As the husband made his report, I thought back to the man I had known. I realized that the promised miracle of spiritual growth is not a product of youth but of the faith simply to try to keep covenants. That couple went out to love the people and to bear witness, and they returned transformed as much as any 21-year-old. Each of us who have made covenants with God face challenges unique to us, but each of us share some common assurances. Our Heavenly Father knows us and our circumstances and even what faces us in the future. His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, has suffered and paid for our sins and those of all the people we will ever meet. He has perfect understanding of the feelings, the suffering, the trials, and the needs of every individual. Because of that, a way will be prepared for us to keep our covenants, however difficult that may now appear, if we go forward in faith. I share with you the obligation to be a witness for God at all times and in all places that I will be in as long as I live, and I share with you the confidence that God can grant us the power to keep all our covenants. I am grateful that I know as surely as did the Apostles Peter, James, and John that Jesus is the Christ, our risen Lord, and that He is our Advocate with the Father. I know that the Father bore direct witness of His beloved Son by introducing the resurrected Lord to the boy Joseph Smith in the sacred grove. I know that the Book of Mormon is the Word of God translated by the Prophet Joseph through the power of God. I know that the keys of the Melchizedek priesthood were restored by those who received them from the Savior and that President Gordon B. Hinckley is now the only person on earth authorized to direct the use of all those keys. I bear solemn testimony that this is the true Church of Jesus Christ in which the ordinances and the covenants are offered which, if accepted and honored, produce peace in this life and eternal life in the world to come. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. My beloved brothers and sisters, this is my first opportunity to address you since the call to this new assignment.
There is no way to express either the sense of responsibility or the feelings of inadequacy that I have experienced, but I want you to know how grateful I am for the privilege of serving the Lord. The chorus of one of my favorite hymns entreats, Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice again, I say rejoice. The text of the hymn is taken from Paul's writings to the Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. The dictionary defines rejoice as to fill joy or great delight. The source of the kind of joy which causes us to rejoice is an understanding of the plan of salvation. The Savior in the Gospel of John was approaching the closing hours of his mortal life when he would take upon himself the sins of the world. As he prepared his disciples for what he knew was to come, he told them, A little while, and ye shall not see me, and again a little while, and ye shall see me. They were not yet, yet ready to comprehend the resurrection. Instead, the Savior explained in gentle terms that he would leave and return and told them what they would feel. Sorrow at his leaving, but I will see you again and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. Just as the Savior's death brought sorrow, the vicissitudes of life, like death, disease, poverty, and injury, can and often will bring unhappiness. Separation from those we love invariably brings sorrow and mourning. Life is not easy, and it would be improper to diminish in any way the trials and tribulations that most experience. That having been said, the resurrection and atonement wrought by the Savior and the promise of eternal life with our loved ones are of such overwhelming significance that to not rejoice would demonstrate a lack of understanding of the Savior's gift. Joy comes when we have the Spirit in our lives. When we have the Spirit, we rejoice in what the Savior has done for us. What do we need to do to have this kind of joy? In addition to attaining saving ordinances and following the living prophet, we need to live in accordance with certain fundamental spiritual principles, such as prayer, scripture study, righteous living, and service to others. It is well understood that if we engage in sinful conduct, we must repent. Let me suggest three other areas or distractions we need to avoid in order to maintain joy and rejoice more fully in the Savior's gift. One, avoid distractions which keep us from doing what we ought to do. Two, avoid the magnification of small imperfections. And three, avoid unfavorable comparisons with others. We are often unaware of the distractions which push us in a material direction and keep us from a Christ-centered focus. In essence, we let celestial goals get sidetracked by celestial distractions. In our family, we call these celestial distractions Saturday morning cartoons. Let me explain. When our children were small, my wife Mary and I decided to follow a tradition which my father taught when I was a child. He would meet with us individually to help us set goals in various aspects of our lives and then teach us how church, school, and extracurricular activities would help us achieve those goals. He had three rules. One, we needed to have worthwhile goals. Two, we could change our goals at any time. Three, whatever goal we chose, we had to diligently work towards it. 
Having been the beneficiary of this tradition, I had the desire to engage in this practice with my children. When our son Larry was five years old, I asked him what he wanted to be when he grew up. He said he wanted to be a doctor like his Uncle Joe. Larry had experienced a serious operation and had acquired great respect for doctors, especially his Uncle Joe. I proceeded to tell Larry how all the worthwhile things he was doing would help him prepare to be a doctor. Several months later, I asked him again what he would like to be. This time he said he wanted to be an airline pilot. Changing the goal was fine, so I proceeded to explain how his various activities would help him achieve this goal. Almost as an afterthought, I said, Larry, last time we talked you wanted to be a doctor. What has changed your mind? He answered, I still like the idea of being a doctor, but I have noticed that Uncle Joe works on Saturday mornings, and I wouldn't want to miss Saturday morning cartoons. <laughs> Since that time, our family has labeled a distraction from a worthwhile goal as a Saturday morning cartoon. What are some of the Saturday morning cartoons that distract us from attaining the joy that we desire? Some want to be married in the temple, but only date those who do not qualify for recommend. Others want to be a good home teacher, visiting teacher, but are distracted by the constant parade of TV programs, catalogs, and other material maintenance and don't find time to minister to those they are assigned to teach. Still others want to have family prayer but allow little matters to build into discord that make it harder for the family to kneel together. If we examine the reasons we don't do what we ought to do, we find that the list of Saturday morning cartoons is almost endless. Speaking of those who will not inherit a kingdom of glory, the Lord, the Lord said, For what doth it profit a man if a gift is bestowed upon him, and he receive not the gift? Behold, he rejoices not in that which is given unto him, neither rejoices in him who is the giver of the gift. The greatest gift to all mankind is the Atonement of Jesus Christ. If we are to rejoice in this gift, we need to avoid the Saturday morning cartoons of life which distract our focus from the Savior and the celestial goal for which we strive. A second group who do not find joy are distracted by magnifying small areas of imperfection so as to drive out happiness. Some have allowed their own perceptions of imperfection to cloud the reality of their lives. An objective outsider observing them would conclude that they should be joyful, but they do not feel to rejoice. They are like the couple who have been invited to visit a beautiful garden. Instead of celebrating the visual feast, they see only the few wilted flowers and weeds and the relatively small areas which are not beautiful to behold. They do not feel the garden meets their expe expectations. In like manner, they are unduly critical of themselves and of others. They have become accustomed to exaggerating small imperfections and underestimating great blessings and have lost the capacity to rejoice. The Savior in Luke mildly cautioned Martha about this approach when she complained that her sister Mary was spending too much time listening to the Savior instead of serving temporal needs. He said, Martha, Martha, Thou art troubled about many things. The Savior then indicated that Mary was focused on what really mattered. A third area of distraction that can destroy joy is comparing our talents and blessings with others. 
The growth in our talents is the best measure of personal progress. In recent years, the concept of personal best has become widely accepted. This has great merit. Remember, we usually judge others at their best and ourselves at our worst. In the parable of the talents, the servants who received five talents and two talents were praised by the Lord for increasing their talents and told to enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. The servant who was rebuked was the servant who buried the talent, giving him. Comparing blessings is almost certain to drive out joy. We cannot be grateful and envious at the same time. If we truly want to have the Spirit of the Lord and experience joy and happiness, we should rejoice in our blessings and be grateful. We should especially rejoice in the blessings that are available through the temple. On April 3, 1836, the Prophet Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery were engaged in sacred spiritual worship in the Kirtland Temple. After a solemn and silent prayer, the Lord appeared to them and accepted the Kirtland Temple as His house. The marvelous description of the Savior and the appearance of ancient prophets who restored essential keys make the 110th section of the Doctrine and Covenants one of the most sacred and profound of all the communications the Lord has given us. Some of the most beautiful words in this section, or that any of us could ever hope to hear, are contained in verses 5 and 6. Behold, your sins are forgiven you. You are clean before me. Therefore lift up your heads and rejoice. Let the hearts of your brethren rejoice. And let the hearts of all my people rejoice who have with their might built this house to my name. Brothers and sisters, let us avoid the Saturday morning cartoons of life, particularly those that would keep us from the temple. Let us rejoice in the promise that is ours through the Atonement of the Savior and through Christ-like living adhere to the counsel of the psalmist. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. That each of us may do this is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Three summers ago, I watched a new bride and groom, Tracy and Tom, emerge from a sacred temple. They laughed and held hands as family and friends gathered to take pictures. I saw happiness and promise in their faces as they greeted their reception guests who, who celebrated publicly the creation of a new family. I wondered that night how long it would be until these two faced the opposition that tests every marriage. Only then would they discover whether their marriage was based on a contract or a covenant. Another bride sighed blissfully on her wedding day. Mom, I'm at the end of all my troubles. Yes, replied her mother, but which end? <laughs> when troubles come, the parties to a contractual marriage seek happiness by walking away. They marry to obtain benefits and will stay only as long as they are receiving what they bargained for. But when troubles come to a covenant marriage, the husband and wife work them through. They marry to give and to grow, bound by covenants to each other, to the community, and to God. A contract companion gives 50 percent. A covenant companion gives 100 percent. Marriage is by nature a covenant, not just a private contract one may cancel at will. Jesus taught about contractual attitudes when he described the hireling 
who performs his conditional promise of care only when he receives something in return. When the hireling seeth the wolf coming, he leaveth the sheep and fleeth, because he careth not for the sheep. By contrast, the Savior said, I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Many people today marry as hirelings, and when the wolf comes, they flee. This idea is wrong. It curses the earth, turning parents' hearts away from their children and from each other. Before their marriage, Tom and Tracy received an eternal perspective on covenants and wolves. They learned through the story of Adam and Eve about life's purpose and how to return to God's presence through obedience and the Atonement. Christ's life is the story of giving the Atonement. The life of Adam and Eve is the story of receiving the Atonement, which empowered them to overcome their separation from God and all opposition until they were eternally at one with the Lord and with each other. Without the fall, Lehi taught, Adam and Eve would never have known opposition, and they never would have had children, wherefore they would have remained in a state of innocence, having no joy, for they knew no misery. Astute parents will see a little connection here. No children, no misery. <laughs> but left in the garden, they could never know joy. So the Lord taught them they would live and bear children in sorrow, sweat, and thorns. Still the ground was cursed for their sake. Their path of affliction also led to the joy of redemption and comprehension. That is why the husband and wife in a covenant marriage sustain and lift each other when the wolf comes. If Tom and Tracy had understood all this, perhaps they would have walked more slowly from the garden-like temple grounds, like Adam and Eve, arm in arm, into a harsh and lonely world. And yet, marrying and raising children can yield the most valuable religious experiences of their lives. Covenant marriage requires a total leap of faith. They must keep their covenants without knowing what risks that may require of them. They must surrender unconditionally, obeying God and sacrificing for each other. Then they will discover what Alma called incomprehensible joy. Of course, some have no opportunity to marry, and some divorces are unavoidable. But the Lord will ultimately compensate those faithful ones who are denied mortal fulfillment. Every marriage is tested repeatedly by three kinds of wolves. The first wolf is natural adversity. After asking God for years to give them a first child, David and Fran had a baby with a serious heart defect. Following a three-week struggle, they buried their newborn son. Like Adam and Eve before them, they mourned together, brokenhearted in faith before the Lord. Second, the wolf of their own imperfections will test them. One woman told me through her tears how her husband's constant criticism finally destroyed not only their marriage but her entire sense of self-worth. He first complained about her cooking and house cleaning, and then about how she used her time, how she talked, looked, and reasoned. Eventually, she felt utterly inept and dysfunctional. My heart ached for her and for him. Contrast her with a young woman who had very little self-confidence when she first married. Then her husband found so much to praise in her that she gradually began to believe she was a good person and that her opinions mattered. His belief in her rekindled her innate self-worth. The third wolf is the excessive individualism that has spawned today's contractual attitudes. A seven-year-old girl came home from school crying, Mom, don't I belong to you? 
Our teacher told us today that nobody belongs to anybody. Children don't belong to parents. Husbands don't belong to wives. I am yours, aren't I, Mom? Her mother held her close and whispered, Of course you're mine, and I'm yours, too. Surely marriage partners must respect one another's individual identity, and family members are neither slaves nor inanimate objects. But this teacher's fear, shared today by many, is that the bonds of kinship and marriage are not valuable ties that bind, but are instead sheer bondage. Ours is the age of the waning of belonging. The adversary has long cultivated this overemphasis on personal autonomy, and now he feverishly exploits it. Our deepest God-given instinct is to run to the arms of those who need us and sustain us. But he drives us away from each other today with wedges of distrust and suspicion. He exaggerates the need for having space, getting out, being left alone. Some people believe him, and then they wonder why they feel left alone. And despite admirable exceptions, children in America's growing number of single-parent families are far more at risk than children in two-parent families. The primary cause of today's general decline in child well-being is a remarkable collapse of marriage. Many people even wonder these days what marriage is. Should we prohibit same-sex marriage? Should we make divorce more difficult to obtain? Some say these questions are not society's business because marriage is a private contract. But as the modern prophets recently proclaimed, marriage is ordained of God. Even secular marriage was historically a three-party covenant among a man, a woman, and the state. Society has a huge interest in the outcome and the offspring of every marriage, so the public nature of marriage distinguishes it from all other relationships. Guests come to weddings, wrote Wendell Berry, because sweethearts say their vows to the community as much as to one another, giving themselves not only to each other but also to the common good, as no contract could ever join them." Close quote. When we observe the covenants we make at the altar of sacrifice, we discover hidden reservoirs of strength. I once said in exasperation to my wife Marie, The Lord placed Adam and Eve on the earth as full-grown people. Why couldn't he have done that with this boy of ours, the one with the freckles and the unruly hair? Marie said to me, The Lord gave us that child to make Christians out of us. One night, one night Marie exhausted herself for hours helping that child build a diorama of a Native American village on a cookie sheet. It was a test no hireling would have endured. At first he fought her efforts, but by bedtime I saw him lay his diorama proudly on a counter. He started for his bed, and then he turned around and ran back across the room. He hugged his mother, grinning his fourth-grade grin. Later I asked Marie in complete awe, How did you do it? She said, I just made up my mind that I couldn't leave him no matter what. Then she added, I didn't know I had it in me. She discovered deep internal wellsprings of compassion because the bonds of her covenants gave her strength to lay down her life for her sheep, even an hour at a time. Now I return to Tom and Tracy, who this year discovered wellsprings of their own. Their second baby threatened to come too early to live. 
They might have made a hireling's convenient choice and gone on with their lives, letting a miscarriage occur. But because they tried to observe their covenants by sacrifice, active Tracy lay almost motionless at home for five weeks, then in a hospital bed for another five. Tom was with her virtually every hour when she wasn't working or sleeping. They prayed their child to earth. She's here and she's there. One night, Tracy lay in the hospital and wondered if how she felt was like the Savior might have felt. She felt like it was a privilege. She was a shepherd, not a hireling. She, like so many parents in Zion, are willing to lay down their lives for their sheep, even an hour at a day at a time. May we restore covenant marriage. May we find joy as Adam and Eve did. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This year, 1996, we have enjoyed a great centennial celebration of statehood in Utah that has given our citizens an opportunity to reflect upon the important accomplishments of the past 100 years. In 1997, the Church will celebrate the 150th anniversary of the arrival of the pioneers in the Salt Lake Valley. During the sesquicentennial year, Church members worldwide will have the opportunity to focus their attention on the pioneer trek from Nauvoo to the Salt Lake Valley. The theme for the sesquicentennial celebration is Faith in Every Footstep. This August, I walked the footsteps of our pioneers along the Mormon Trail through Wyoming and Utah. I wondered why our dedicated ancestors suffered so terribly and yet willingly faced such tremendous obstacles. Perhaps one reason they sacrificed and endured was to leave a legacy of faith for all of us to help us feel our urgent responsibility to move forward in building up the Church throughout the world. We need the same dedication today in every one of our footsteps as the pioneers had in theirs. President Joseph S. Smith, who walked the pioneer trail to Utah as a nine-year-old boy, said in April 1904 General Conference, I firmly believe that the divine approval, blessings, and favor of Almighty God has guided the destiny of His people from the organization of the Church until the present and guided us in our footsteps and in our journeyings into the tops of these mountains. Our pioneer ancestors sacrificed virtually all they had, including their lives in many cases, to follow a prophet of God to this chosen valley. Next year's celebration will honor pioneers worldwide, in addition to the Utah pioneers. As chairman of the Church Sesquicentennial Committee, I ask you stake and ward leaders to place the Church Sesquicentennial celebration on your next Council meeting agenda. Please study the guidelines sent to you in January of 1995 and the additional information sent in intervening months. In your councils, choose the activities that will be appropriate 
and important to assure a spiritually fulfilling experience for your members in 1997. The vast majority of the Utah pioneers got their first glimpse of the sagebrush, sago lily, salt flat desert landscape of this great Salt Lake Valley on foot. Some even arrived barefoot after having suffered extreme hardships in traversing over 1,300 miles of prairie, desert, and mountain wilderness. Before the railroad reached Utah Territory in 1869, approximately 70,000 pioneers, 9,600 wagons, and 650 handcarts made the trek from winter quarters in present-day Iowa and Nebraska to the Salt Lake Valley. Each pioneer who walked from the Mississippi River to the Great Salt Lake took millions of steps to traverse that distance. Under favorable circumstances, the trek took a little more than three months. Traveling 15 miles in a day was considered to be a good day. In total, billions of footsteps of faith were taken by our pioneers. On the trail, a loving attachment frequently developed between a pioneer and his ox team. Joseph S. Smith related, My team leaders' names were Tom and Joe. We raised them from calves, and they were both white. Tom was trim-built, active, young, and more intelligent than many a man. Many times while traveling sandy or rough roads on long, thirsty drives, my oxen were lowing with the heat and fatigue. I would put my arms around Tom's neck and cry bitter tears. That was all I could do. Tom was my favorite and best and most willing and obedient servant and friend. The pioneer exodus from Nauvoo, Illinois, began February 4, 1846. Nearly four years earlier, in August of 1842, the Prophet Joseph shared his foreknowledge of the trek west. I prophesied that the saints would continue to suffer much affliction and would be driven to the Rocky Mountains. Many would apostatize. Others would be put to death by our persecutors or lose their lives in consequence of exposure or disease. And some would live to build cities and see the saints become a mighty people in the midst of the Rocky Mountains. Brigham Young received a vision of Joseph Smith in which Joseph showed him a mountain and an ensign upon its peak. Joseph said, Build under the point where the colors fall, and you'll prosper and have peace. The identification of this mountain peak as the Saints entered the Salt Lake Valley in July 1847 confirmed to President Young that the pioneers had found their destination, their Zion, in the tops of the mountains. We know this conical dome-shaped mountain today is Ensign Peak. It rises above the valley floor just north of where we now sit. The exodus from Nauvoo and across the prairies, rivers, and mountains to the Salt Lake Valley was a migration 
of major proportion near Mount Pisgah, one of the communities the saints established in Iowa, Wilford Woodruff recorded, I stopped my carriage and had a most splendid view. I could stand and gaze to the east, west, north, and south and beheld the saints pouring out from the hills and the dales with their teams, wagons, flocks, and herds by hundreds and thousands until it looked like the movement of a nation. Traveling across Iowa, the pioneers' worry centered on food and forage, wood and fire, and ceaseless snow, rain, and mud. A broken axle or a missing ox became a crisis. Tragic illness overcame many who were wet, chilled, weak, and malnourished. The 265-mile trek from Nauvoo to winter quarters took 131 days. By comparison, the trek from winter quarters to the Salt Lake Valley, which was about four times the distance, approximately 1,032 miles, took only 111 days. Perhaps the most memorable pioneer stalwarts were the saints who made the journey in handcart companies. These companies brought nearly 3,000 pioneers west between 1856 and 1860. In 1856, two handcart companies with 1,075 pioneers under the leadership of James G. Willie and Edward Martin left later in the year than planned, and they encountered early winter storms in present-day Wyoming. Peter Howard McBride, then but a boy of six years, was a member of the Martin Company. His father, after helping push hand carts through icy, the icy river, died in the snow and freezing cold that night. Peter's mother was sick. His older sister, Janetta, watched out for the younger children. Her shoes had worn out and her feet left bloody tracks in the snow. On the banks of the Sweetwater River, the wind blew their tent down during the night. Everyone scampered out as the snow covered the tent, everyone except little Peter. According to his account, in the morning, I heard someone say, How many are dead in this tent? My sister said, Well, my little brother must be frozen to death in that tent. So they jerked the tent loose, sent it scurrying over the snow. My hair was frozen to the tent. I picked myself up and came out quite alive, to their surprise. We find one of the most touching stories of sacrifice, faith, and loving charity in the life of Jens Nielsen, who was a member of the Willie Handcart Company. Jens, a relatively prosperous Danish farmer, heeded the call to bring his family to Zion. In Iowa, he wrote that he had let all of his money go to the church, except enough to buy a handcart and stock it with 15 pounds of belongings per person. Jens wrote, Obedience is better than sacrifice. The people for whom Jens was responsible were himself, his wife Elsie, 
their six-year-old son, Niels, and a nine-year-old girl, Bodell Mortensen, whom Jens offered to take to Utah. In the early Wyoming blizzard, temperatures plummeted below zero. The Nielsens had consumed their last pound of flour days before, but somehow they made it over the treacherous rocky ridge, urged on by their indomitable courage and unconquerable faith. Tragically, 13 of the company died at Rock Creek and were buried in shallow, snow-covered graves. Among them, Jens and Elsie's son, Niels, and Bodell Mortensen. President Hinckley described this portion of the trail as a trail of tragedy, a trail of faith, a trail of devotion, a trail of consecration, even of consecration of life itself. Jens arrived at Rock Creek, 11 miles beyond Rocky Ridge, with both feet frozen. He was unable to walk another step and pleaded with Elsie, Leave me by the trail, in the snow, to die. And you go ahead and try to keep up with the company and save your life. Elsie, with her unfaltering pioneer courage, replied, Ride. I can't leave you. I can pull a cart. Such was the strength and the faith of many pioneer women on the trail. A cow helped provide necessary nourishment on the trail for the family of my great-grandmother, Margaret McNeil, as she came to Zion from Scotland. As a 12-year-old, it was Margaret's task to arise early and get breakfast for the family and milk her cow. She would then drive the cow on ahead of the company to feed, let it feed in the grassy places. She wrote, The cow furnished us milk, our chief source of food. Had it not been for the milk, we would have starved. I want the children of the choir to listen carefully. One night our cow ran away from the camp, and I was sent to bring her back. I was not watching where I was going and was barefooted. All of a sudden I began to feel I was walking on something soft. I looked down to see what it would be. To my horror, I was standing in a bed of snakes, large ones and small ones. At the sight of them I became so weak I could scarcely move. All I could think of was to pray, and in some way I jumped out of them. The Lord blessed and cared for me. We arrived in Ogden, Utah on the fourth day of October 1859 after a journey of hardships and hunger. I walked every step of the way across the plains. President Joseph F. Smith, who took part in the westward trek and in the first 70 years of hardship in this valley, shared this precious overview of the Lord's protective hand over the Latter-day Saints. Our good friends from the East used to come out here in the early days and abrade us. They said, Why, it is a fulfillment of the curse of God upon you. You have been driven away from the rich lands of Illinois and Missouri into a desert 
into a salt land. I said, Yes, we have salt enough here to save the world, thank God, and we may find a use for it by and by. There was a time when there wasn't feed for livestock, and the beef was so lean there wasn't enough fat to even make decent soap. Just then, the Lord sent a handful of alfalfa seed into the valley, and Christopher Layton planted it, watered it, and it matured, and from that little beginning, Utah can now produce a richer crop of hay than Illinois or Missouri can do. Truly, the Lord encourages us to walk in faith to the edge of the light and beyond into the unknown. After the trial of our faith, He once again shines the light ahead, ahead of us, and our journey of faith in every footstep continues. Now it has swelled into billions and billions of footsteps throughout the world. In my 20 years as a general authority, I have seen the worldwide expansion of the Church, and I marvel at the results of the work of our pioneers in every country where they, through their faith and sacrifice, established the Church. I share the feelings of President Heber J. Grant, who said, I can never think of the pioneers, but I am full of admiration and gratitude and utter a prayer to the Lord to help me as one of the descendants of that noble band, to be loyal, to be true, to be faithful as they were. Brothers and sisters, join with us and begin now to prepare for a spiritual journey next year by walking in the footsteps of our beloved pioneers in every land. We must be sure that the legacy of faith received from them is never lost. Let their heroic lives touch our hearts, and especially the hearts of our youth, so that the fire of true testimony and unwavering love for the Lord and His Church will blaze brightly within each one of us as it did our faithful pioneers. Their accomplishments were possible because they knew, as I know, that our Heavenly Father and His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, restored the gospel of Jesus Christ through the Prophet Joseph Smith, and that this Church will continue to roll forth until it fills the whole earth. To this I testify. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.